Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we're beginning a new mini-series during our year-long study of the Gospel of Matthew that we're calling Up and to the Right. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim as he sets up our new series. have a Bible. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. We are over halfway through our series on the gospel of Matthew, um, but we're, not, we're uh, not yet halfway into Matthew, so we're going to have to like hustle a little bit um, to make our end of the year deadline. But we're uh, over halfway through our year-long study on the life of Jesus, as told by his least likely disciple, that, uh, that tax collector trader, named Matthew, um, but he finds Jesus and his life is transformed and it's, it's been a good story. Um, this morning, what I want to I do is uh, I want to share with you two stories that are kind of linked by, they, they, they really mark a noticeable turn in the life of Jesus. So uh, there, there's a turn that happens. Um, up until this moment in our, our story, there has been some opposition, but most of the opposition to Jesus has been by religious people. Um, religious leaders especially, hurting people have been, like, they've been coming in waves to Jesus. Uh, the crowds up until this point have gotten bigger. The miracles up until this point have gotten bigger. Like everything has kind of been moving bigger. More people are attracted to the movement. More people are astonished by the teaching of Jesus. More people want to be around him. And now we're going to see that there's a noticeable turn in the story and uh, we're going to spend five weeks exploring this turn. So uh, kind of wrapping up summer, we're going to spend five weeks noticing um, the turn in our story and kind of how Jesus goes from really popular to, in the eyes of many, we got to kill him. Like, we got to kill him. So uh, we're going to spend five weeks on it. Um, now, the, the way I tend to, to work or think of sermon series, this is probably just me, but... Um, uh, Maybe we'll talk afterwards, Mike. I'd like to know how your process is. For me, my process is usually, okay, week one is all about laying the foundation. So I, we got some work to do. Some, uh, I was telling somebody before the service that this is a really boring one. I'm sorry. It's really, really boring. Um, so, that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm apologizing now, but I'm a little unapologetic because it'll pay off later. But we got to lay the foundation week one. And then we spend a couple weeks building on that foundation. I, I want to show you a couple stories and place them inside of the foundation we build today. And then the last week of a series is when we try to pull it all together and say, okay, what, what are the, the one, two, three, four, five things that Jesus is teaching us in this moment? Uh, so for instance, our last series, we looked at the parables and uh, the parables about the kingdom of God. And then we said, okay, if that's the parables, um, week one was all, remember, it was all building that foundation. And then we explored some of the parables in the next couple weeks. And then last week, we tried to bring it all together. Um, anyway, this is just my long way of saying uh, we're, it's going to be boring, and I'm so sorry. But I get to use my laser pointer, so for me, that's a good thing. I get excited about these. Uh, and, and again, the payoff will come. Stay with me. Uh, Matthew chapter 13. By the way, they don't teach you in seminary to tell the people that the sermons are going to be boring. That's not a good thing to do. If you're a student, don't do that. Matthew 13, we're beginning in uh, verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary and aren't his brothers James 
Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. There's a turn in the story. Now, um, let's start by, by getting the lay of the land. This is like the context work we got to do. Let's start by getting the lay of the land. Uh, and, and Jesus calls three places, predominantly three places. Jesus calls three places home. There are three places that Jesus kind of spends his life uh, on this earth living. Like three places. Let's test our collective knowledge together. Let's see if we can get them all. Um, where, where does Jesus call home? Capernaum. Some of you are introverts. Whisper it to an extrovert next to you. <laughs> Nazareth. Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Yeah. Uh, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He then spends a majority of his childhood life, uh, teens, 20s, in Nazareth. And then uh, around the age of 30, he goes to Capernaum and launches his public ministry. Um, maybe you were thinking, here's some other ones that I would have accepted. Egypt. I would have accepted Egypt because he, uh, if you remember, he, they have to, mom and dad have to flee with Jesus uh, to Egypt during, because of persecution. I would have also accepted heaven and my heart. Those were also acceptable answers. Um, but the three right ones you got. Uh, so he's born in Bethlehem. And then um, let me show you a couple maps. Uh, Jesus is born down in here, um, flees to Egypt for a while, comes home. The reason he goes uh, around this area, we read, is because there is a guy in charge by the name of Herod Archelaus. Read the story closely of the of, uh, kind of early Matthew. Um, Herod Archelaus, just remember that name. Um, but he makes his home up in Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth is here. This is about 90 miles. Um, probably would have crossed this way, but 90 miles. And then goes to Capernaum. Capernaum is about 40-ish mile by the ancient trails. So if you were to go on foot, about 40-ish miles, uh, a journey um, between Capernaum to Nazareth. Um, so Jesus travels. Now, in order to kind of get a sense of, um, of what, we're, what we're looking at here and kind of thinking about, okay, Jesus, what are you, what are you trying to do? Um, why are you moving? Because one of the questions you have to ask is, why does Jesus move from here to here? Why does he do that? It's a big deal to Matthew. Matthew wants you to know, oh, by the way, Jesus is moving. Um, so why Capernaum? Hold that question in order to get there. Again, we're going to school a little bit today. I got to teach you something about roads, uh, ancient roads. There are three main ancient roads that run north-south uh, across the land of Israel at the time of Jesus. Three main roads. The first road is known as, um, this road right here is known as the King's Highway. King's Highway. Uh, the King's Highway connects Sinai all the way up to the city of Damascus way in the north. Um, now, does this, does this highway come up in our Bible? Yeah, 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 yes. Uh, the, it comes up. The book of Numbers tells us that the Israelites wander around in the desert down in this area, and then they take this road up and cut across into Jericho, across the Jordan River, into Jericho, they probably stopped and get some baptism water. And then they went to Jericho uh, and, uh, and they enter into the land. So that shows up in our text, um, the King's Highway. Second major road, it's not on this map, but it runs along the ridge of these mountains. Uh, it is known as the Way of the Patriarchs or the Patriarch's Way. 
Uh, the patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, like the Old Testament, the founding fathers of the scriptures. Uh, and this is, uh, every road is about 25-ish, or every city is about 25-ish miles apart because that's a day's walk in the ancient world. You can make it about 25 miles. So if you had to travel, um, if you were going to take this road up over the mountains, you would get up early, pack your supplies, and you would walk a day's journey from Jerusalem to Hebron. And you would walk a day's journey to Shechem. Um, and, and that's about 25 miles. You want to get there before nightfall because it gets cold up in that area at nightfall. Make sense? Two roads. This is fascinating. I know. Okay, third road. In, uh, now, does it, by the way, does that, that come up in our Bible? Yeah, yeah, a lot. Uh, in fact, um, the Old Testament, uh, a lot of the road they travel is up over the mountains. Um, but the main road, the main road that was traveled at the time of Jesus was a road known as the Via Maris or the Way of the Sea. Uh, this is the Via Maris or the Way of the Sea. Uh, it is not up over mountains. It's not through the desert. Uh, the Via Maris is on flat ground and it's relatively, it's coastal. So it's relatively cool. Um, it's relatively wide and it's relatively safe. Lots of people travel it. In fact, uh, the Via Maris connects the empire of Egypt to the empires. If you're going to travel from Egypt to Assyria, you would take the Via Maris. If you're going to travel from Egypt to Babylon, you're going to take the Via Maris. If you're going to travel from Egypt to Rome, you're going to take the Via Maris. If you're going to travel from Egypt to Persia, you're going to take the Via Maris. If you're going to travel from Egypt to Mesopotamia, you're going to take the Via Maris. Does this make sense? So, so, some, someone said, uh, this is the road to Damascus. Yeah, the, Damascus, uh, what's interesting about Damascus, and when Paul like, wants to persecute Christians, and then he decides, I'm going to go out into the world, he makes Damascus his home because it's where the Via Maris and the King's Highway meet. It's like the city of cities, right? Anyway, three roads that run north-south. There is one road that runs east-west at the time. One major road that runs east-west. There's a few valleys in here where you can cut across. Um, if you're coming to Israel, I'd make you memorize the valleys. But, uh, but for our sake, there's one major valley. It's known as the Jezreel Valley. And through the Jezreel Valley, do we have the, uh, the map um, the, like the 3D map, that, that one. So uh, you have a few valleys that you can cut through, but there's really one major valley that would connect the east-west, um, one road that was connected east-west. It was known as the east-west road. Yeah. <laughs> if you only have one, why not? Uh, the east-west road. Now, does any stories of our Bible take place on the east-west road? Yes, many of them, maybe most of them take place on there. A lot of the bloodiest battles of your Bible happen right here because everyone wants to control this road, okay? You following me so far? Again, terribly interesting. It'll matter in just a moment. Now, why does Jesus move to Capernaum? Well, Capernaum, uh, yeah, so Capernaum is in, yeah, there we go. Uh, Capernaum is where you have the Via Maris cut across, meet the east-west road, then Capernaum becomes a major site because they build themselves right along the major highway. Capernaum is a site that you would have, if you're going to, like if you've got ta uh, a tradesmen coming from Egypt or going to Egypt, if you're stopped at Capernaum, you have connection to the entire world. 
Capernaum's a relatively large city at the time of Jesus. Relatively large city. Capernaum is the space. If you're going to take a movement and go global, you move to Capernaum. Why Capernaum? Uh, Capernaum, you have international influence. So let's go deeper. Um, now, I'll let, so if I, Capernaum, big city, influential city. You guys with me on this? Why then does Jesus start in Nazareth? How, what's Nazareth like? Nazareth is very different than Capernaum. So Jesus, at the age of 30-ish, moves to the city. But before he's in the city, Jesus is living in a small town called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is, um, essentially, it's a pop-up town. Uh, in fact, to this day, um, archaeologists haven't really discovered much from Nazareth. There's not much in Nazareth. Uh, in fact, when Jesus heads to the big city, Capernaum, and he's calling his disciples, one of these guys, a guy by the name of Nathaniel. Notice how Nathaniel responds when he hears that Jesus is from Nazareth. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. He's from this pop-up town, this middle of nowhere pop-up town. So what do we know about Nazareth? A couple things. We know that Nazareth was a pop-up town, came fast and didn't, now you have a modern kind of Christian town there, but it grew fast and kind of went away fast. Pop-up town. We also know that Nazareth was a town of predominantly builders. Uh, in your Bible, the word, um, oh, by the way, Joseph's dad is a what? Carpenter, right? You say carpenter because carpenter is the word that uh, when the, the, the Greek word is tekton, tekton means builder. And when the King James Bible was being translated in England, they said, okay, well, what do builders build with? And they looked around and they're like, well, there's a bunch of trees and we know our builders build with trees. And so they said, Okay, so Jesus was, or Joseph was a tecton. That means Joseph was a builder. Joseph was a carpenter because that's what builders build with. But now we know that actually in Nazareth, you're not gonna find a lot of trees. You're gonna find a lot of stones, am I right? A lot of rocks. Uh, you don't build with trees if you're a builder in, you would use some trees maybe for a roof, but by and large, the main thing you would work with, if you're a builder in Israel, especially in Nazareth, especially in the north and the Galilee region, what you're going to build with is rock. I heard somebody say stonemason. Yes, uh, most likely Jesus, um, probably a skilled builder taught by his dad and how to work predominantly with stone. Notice in the scriptures how many images are, I chiseled you like stone. I often think of like um, the hard things in my life, like the, like the father is just chiseling that off. And it's painful, but it's a rough edge and I don't need it in my life. It's not good for me. And sometimes God's got to take his chisel and knock it out, right? That's the picture. That's the picture. Um, anyway, that's also the tangent. Uh, by the way, if you, sorry, I, uh, I might've ruined the, a bit in the movie, The Passion of the Christ. When they, remember that, that scene where Jesus invents the table? Probably not true. Jesus probably didn't invent the table. Sorry to ruin that. Uh, sorry, Mel Gibson. Um, Anyway, uh, one of the things we discovered in Nazareth, in the ruins, we did not find much. One of the things we have discovered is a stone quarry. Um, and you find these stones. But there's a problem with the stones. We found the stone quarry, but you can't find ruins of anything the stones built, especially these large of stones. These are big stone blocks. So the archaeologists started asking the question, okay, if you're going to cut the big blocks, but you have no evidence of using the big blocks, what's going on here? Well, we, we think we know the answer to that. While there's not a big 
why does a group of builders cut big, large stones in Nazareth as a pop-up town? Why is a group of builders moved to the middle of nowhere, seemingly, to build a site, to build a, like, what are they doing here? There's no real buildings. That's the question. Can we go a layer deeper? Okay, one layer deeper. Um, it, for me, this is interesting, but this, for some of you, it's gonna get even more boring. We have to lay the foundation, okay? It's gonna be good. It'll pay off, I promise, someday. Maybe not today. Why would builders move 90 miles away? So if, if Joseph is moving from, he's from Bethlehem, right? So he comes back down to Bethlehem for the census. So we know his family's from Bethlehem. So why does Joseph move out away from home? That's a big deal. In fact, Jesus tells the story of a prodigal son. Like it's a big deal to leave your father's house. Why does Joseph, the builder, move 90 miles from Bethlehem and move to Nazareth, a pop-up town for builders? Why does he do this? Now, here's where things, my, again, my mind, it gets really, really interesting. Uh, in order to get an answer to that, I have to introduce you or potentially reintroduce you to a, maybe the most dysfunctional family in our New Testament, uh, a family known as the Herods. Now, the first Herod uh, is a gentleman by the name of Herod the, the Great. Okay, so you know Herod the Great a little bit. Uh, Herod the Great, um, he's uh, incredibly wealthy. Some have argued he's maybe the most wealthy guy that's ever lived. Uh, I think Elon would take... Like maybe he wouldn't like that so much. But some have argued that Herod the Great is maybe the, the wealthiest man who ever lived. The way he got his money was his dad is a high-ranking general who puts his son, he's actually from a kingdom to the south known as Idumea uh, or the Edomites you might have heard of. Um, he puts his son Herod in charge of the Spice Road. The Spice Road is the trade road. So this is kind of be like you have control of Silicon Valley, right? Or you buy Twitter or something. Sorry, Elon. Um, you're always listening. Uh, so uh, Herod's wealthy. Herod's, Herod is wealthy. And uh, Herod, um, he gets his wealth. And the Romans, when they take over, they recognize, okay, this guy's got some wealth. And with wealth comes power and influence. Um, because that's how the Romans think. So the Romans say to Herod, we want you to be our puppet king. We're still the king. We're still the emperor. But you can lead these people. Keep them from rebelling. Collect the taxes. And so Herod becomes the puppet king. Herod's first job is to essentially, I got to build my kingdom. And when you hear build Herod's kingdom, it should, by the way, we just talked about God's kingdom. This should like, there's a collision of kingdoms here. Herod's kingdom and the thing Herod's most known for, and you still see Herod's fingerprints all over Israel, was in brick and mortar. He was an incredibly brilliant builder. And uh, the first thing he did when he came into power is he started building all of these complexes. Uh, so in the south, you've heard of cities like Masada. He, uh, he builds a fortress at Masada. He builds a fortress called the Herodian. Um, we just discovered, but we think, we think it's his mausoleum. He dies there, but it was a fortress before that. Um, the Herodian. He, uh, he essentially puts the city of Jerusalem on steroids, makes the temple far more beautiful. That's all in the south. In the year 37 BC, so before Christ, BC, 37 BC, Herod takes over the north, the Galilee region. Herod takes the north, but he has a problem when he takes the north. His problem is, how do I keep these people from rebelling against me, A, and B, how do I get as much of their money as possible? His solution, I need an administrative center. I need a city where I can perch my military and I can collect taxes. That he, so he looks around Galilee and he decides, I need a spot somewhere along the east-west road. 
because the east-west road is where everyone travels. So he picks a site, uh, a city that he calls Sepphoris. Let me hear you say Sepphoris. Sepphoris. Sepphoris comes from the word zippori. It's a Greek word that means bird. Uh, because it, from Sepphoris, you have a bird's eye view over the entire galley. Josephus, the first century historian, talks about Sepphoris, and he refers to Sepphoris as the ornament of the Galilee, a city crested on a hill. Where have I heard that? Where have I heard that? Yeah. That he declares Sepphoris is going to be his administrative center. That'll be the site of power to Herod the Great. Now, um, uh, Jesus, um, by the way, the city of Nazareth, about two and a half mile walk from Sepphoris. Why does a group of builders move next door to Sepphoris? Because they're building, this is by the way, 4 BC is when he, decide, he declares Sepphoris to be his capital city of the north. Why, does build, why do builders take that large of stone? Well, we've discovered that large of stone in the city of Sepphoris. Um, let me show you some images of Sepphoris. Uh, this is the, some of the tell, um, the ruins of Sepphoris. Notice the, the size of the streets. Does this look familiar? Yeah, notice the size of the columnated roads. Uh, a theater we discovered. By the way, in the theater, uh, they had a play. It was an inaugural play that uh, every single day, um, for a while at least, according to Josephus, they would launch this play. It was called The Trojan Women. In The Trojan Women, they, there was this line. It's a famous line in the play. It's, O Troy, O Troy, how I have longed to gather thee. Ever, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and what does Jesus quote? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. Jesus is borrowing the words of the very, I find that stunning. By the way, do you know what the word uh, actor is in Greek? I think we talked about this maybe a while back. Hypocrite. You paint your faces, you put on this display, but you're just an actor. Jesus, like I, I picture, I wonder, as dad Joseph is walking building the enemy, Herod's the enemy, building the enemy's fortress, and he's walking his boy Jesus. Uh, scriptures tell us that Jesus learned, grew in wisdom and stature. He learned what he knew. Uh, in his humanity, he learned what he knew. I just picture that conversation with this boy, and how do you as a dad, fathers, dads, how do you as a dad explain to your son, we're going to go do this thing. We're going to go build a theater. We're going to go work in Sepphoris, if he did. I'm not 100% sure, but if he did, how do you explain to your son, hey, we're going to go build Herod's kingdom, but Herod's kingdom is not the true kingdom. Son, protect your heart. Protect your heart. You're going to see these actors with their exaggerated facial expressions. Son, there are religious people like that too. And they put on a show, but their hearts are not in it. I guys picture dad walking his son. I, I just find it to be... Um, Pretty image, a beautiful image. Um, uh, anyway, so Herod the Great dies. Uh, uh, is there another image? A couple more, maybe. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, they have these elaborate mosaic tiles. Uh, they, they discovered, uh, next image, this is known as the Mona Lisa of the Galilee. It's all cut little stones. You gotta be an incredible builder to put that together. Uh, this is 1,500 years before da Vinci would paint the Mona Lisa. It's stunning. Um, this is, this is the city, this Sepphoris, Herod's city. Herod dies. Um, can I take you deeper into history? I'm watching it too. 
Okay, Herod dies. Herod dies and uh, the, a group of rebels, no, they call themselves the zealots because they're gonna be zealous for God. They're gonna fight just like Phineas fought in the Old Testament, just like Elijah fought. They're gonna take their country back from the Romans led by a guy by the name of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, not the Judas that is following Jesus, a different Judas, but they're gonna fight. And they decide, what, what do we need to do? We gotta take back this, this administrative center. It's God's territory, we're gonna take it back. So they launch a rebellion. I, by the way, am not making commentary on whatever happened on January, okay? It's a story, stay within the story. <laughs> take it back, they take it back. So uh, Judas wins the fight. He takes back the administrative center. It's now his again for a short period of time. A Roman general by the name of Varus, he's stationed in Syria, hears what's happening and thinks, oh no, if they think they can take this one back, this is going to continue to spill out. They're gonna start fighting more fights. These zealots are dangerous people. We have to stop the zealots. Varus comes in, squashes the rebellion, and according to Josephus, he burns the city to the ground, all of it, burns it to the ground and puts in slavery anyone in the city who, who waged a rebellion. In slavery. But Herod's dead. Now you have a problem if you're Rome. These zealots are starting to pop up. Their movements are starting to pop up. What do you do? Herod has three sons who all want the job. They go to the emperor and, and they say to the emperor, I'm the best son. Choose me to run your land. Herod realizes if I give one of them power over the other two, there's going to be constant civil war. They're just going to be fighting each other again and again and again. I can't do that. So he decides to split the kingdom into three kingdoms. To the south, a guy by the name of Herod Archelaus gets the south, gets the region of Judea. Herod Archelaus, by the way, Herod Archelaus is a monster. He's only in power for a little bit. He decides during Passover, he's going to show his, flex his muscles, kills 300,000 people during Passover. And even Rome's like, that's too far. And so they replace Herod Archelaus with a, one of their governors, a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate. Why is Pilate in, in uh, Jerusalem at the time of Jesus? Because Archelaus blew it. He was supposed to be there. Archelaus gets the south to the northeast. You got a guy by the name of Herod Philip. He calls his headquarters Caesarea Caesar Philippi. Um, he gets the north. And then to the, to the north, kind of where Jesus does his ministry, the Galilee region goes to a guy by the name of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas gets in power, and he wants to flex his muscle. He wants to show everyone in the Galilee that he's every bit as powerful as his dad. So he decides to rebuild Sepphoris. Not just reconstruct it, bigger buildings, better buildings, more incredibly stunning features. A lot of these things that I showed you were from his rebuild of the city. Now, back to our story. Jesus comes into, he returns home. He's left for the big city. And he comes home to a group of builders. His sisters are still there, according to the story. And you hear the, the jealousy anger in the, his hometown that he abandoned in their mind. Feel the jealousy, feel the anger in their words as he returns. Listen to this again. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? You can almost hear the taunts, right? Like it's like, well, 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 look who went to the big city and got all fancy coming back here for us. Uh, isn't this the carpenter's son? You're just a worker like us. Isn't this a carpenter's son? The Tecton son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And aren't all his sisters still with us? 
Where did this man get all these things? Oh, he leaves to the big city, comes back with all these powers. Yeah, yeah, we don't, we're not interested, Jesus. You forgot about us. We, we are building this. We don't like him either. But you left us. We're, we're. And they took offense at him, to which Jesus responds, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now, when we read those words, I know from my first read of those words, it's like when Jesus says, a prophet's not without honor. I picture like um, Mel Gibson reference number two, like Braveheart, right? Like a prophet's not without honor. I'm not gonna do miracles. But uh, if you put it in context, I actually think um, Jesus is here from two ish to 30-ish. These are not strangers. These are his neighbors. These are his friends. It's a small community. To be rejected, I think he's sad. I mean, it's, it's not nameless, faceless people. This is, this is Ezekiel, and he's taking his boys, Yehuda and Abraham, and uh, like every day we walk together, and Yehuda and Abraham, they tell these jokes to, to each other, and they're kind of crass, but you know, they're kind of funny little kids. Uh, and, and that's Sarah, and Sarah makes warm bread every day. And, like, we love her. She's like the town mom. Like, everybody loves her. And, and there is, uh, there's Ahab over there and Elijah. And, and, like, this is my family. I don't know if those are their real names. All I know is there were real names, right? There were real people, and Jesus knew them. And they take offense at him. And so he doesn't do any miracles. Why doesn't he do miracles? Some have suggested it's because he can't. As though like faith is like Jesus batteries. And if you don't believe them, my Jesus batteries don't get full and I can't do the miracles. That's actually a theology that some people have. And it's, I want to laugh at the theology, but like realistically, lots of people have been damaged by a theology that said, oh, you haven't been healed because you don't believe enough and the battery isn't charged. And so God's like waiting to heal you. And if you would just charge the battery more, believe more, like squashed out more, then God's battery would be full and he could heal you. Um, is that why Jesus doesn't heal? Doesn't seem to be, right? In fact, Jesus, Jesus will heal lots of people who don't even know who he is. Zero faith. Demon-possessed people from the other side of like the Decapolis. I think the reason Jesus doesn't heal is because his own family and friends don't want him to. They took offense at him. Um, let me say it like this. Because you would, uh, like, I would expect Jesus is going to double down. He's going to do bigger miracles. He's going to show them who he is. Really put on a display, right? Real big fireworks kind of stuff. Um, but uh, I think what Jesus understands, and maybe we forget sometimes, is you really can't take people where they don't want to go. Right? If they don't want them to take them there, they're desperate, they're hurting, but you cannot force people to go where they don't want to go. You can't force people to change. You can't force people to grow. You can't force people to repent. You can't force people to go where they don't want to go. Jesus goes to his own home, his own town, his own people, and they don't want him. Um, they don't listen. Uh, and again, this is a pretty, uh, to take it out of Bible land and into our land, um, some of you have sons and daughters, children, grandchildren who have walked away from the church or maybe walked away from the family, and you've tried everything you can think of to talk them back. You've prayed, you've lost sleep, you've cried tears over come back, come back, and they're not coming back. What you learn from Jesus is you cannot force people to go where they don't wanna go. Um, some of you, and maybe it's a parent, and your parent is like slowly becoming 
um, a little more paranoid, a little lonelier, a little more depressed, and everything, you've tried to use reason with them, you've tried to argue with them, you've raised voices with them, you've tried everything you can think of, and for whatever reason, they're gone, they're done. You cannot force people to go where they do not want to go. You can pray for them, you can be waiting and willing with open arms, but you cannot force people to go where they don't want to go. Um, Jesus doesn't force his uh, hometown to go with him. Now, um, I think sometimes we, uh, we think of faith as like this journey from like, we call this, this micro series, we call it up and to the right, because it feels as though like faith is supposed to be up and to the right, right? Like we tell the stories, here's the faith stories that we often tell, right? I, I was this, and then I met Jesus, and now I'm not that, right? I was addicted to this thing. Then I met Jesus, and now I'm not addicted. God set me free. And we elevate those stories as we should. They're powerful stories. Uh, um, I was, you know, I was lonely, and then I met Jesus, and now I'm not lonely. And we can tend to think of faith as like up and to the right. Uh, faith is this constant, like I'm getting, I'm, like everything's getting better. Everything's getting easier. Notice up until now, everything has been Yes, there's been some opposition from religious leaders, but it's been bigger crowds, bigger teachings, bigger miracles. And now you have this moment where the people, religious leaders have rejected him in the past, but desperate people keep coming to him. But now you have a group of desperate people who are still rejecting him. Is faith up and to the right? Maybe you've wondered to yourself, like, my, my life isn't up and to the right, but I keep hearing these stories, and did I do it wrong? I remember I grew up with a song, and it's an old, an old hymn. You may have heard of it. Um, it says these words. Uh, Shackled by a heavy burden, neath a load of guilt and shame, then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. He touched me, oh, he touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, now I know he touched me and made me whole. You, you know this song. It's, a, it's good lyrics, true for some, true for many, but that's how we often tell the story, right? I was this, shackled by burdens. I met Jesus. He touched me. He made me whole. But what happens when the addict finds Jesus and still has to go through recovery? It's ups and downs. The lonely person finds Jesus, finds comfort and peace, but still has some really ugly, really painful, really hard nights. The good Christian with good intentions, meets Jesus, and their life just got way more complicated. Because now they look and say, I got all this stuff that I don't need. I got all these things that aren't. Like, up and to the right, well, who's right? Who's up? Who's definition? Um, this is life. Let me wrap this. Never mind. Um, now let me, let me just read it, and then I'll make a couple comments. Uh, Matt 14, just one more story real quick. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch. Who's Herod the Tetrarch? Is that Herod the Great? No, Herod, Ar Herod Antipas. Okay, so Herod Antipas. At the time, Herod Antipas heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That's why miracle, miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Essentially, there's an affair. Uh, he has uh, an affair with his brother's wife, okay? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, Herod wanted to kill John. John didn't like it, so he starts talking against it. But he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Now, who's John the Baptist? His cousin and his best friend. John says, I'm the best man, right? He's his best friend. So he's been arrested for calling out this affair. 
On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias, the woman he had the affair with, danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her, by the way, this is sick, you're right, yada, 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 Uh, that he promised to give an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. I got to keep up with the dinner guests. Uh, And had John beheaded in the prison, his head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. You can't yada, yada, yada that story very well, but um, that's the, notice you have, Religious leaders hear the parables and they say, Jesus, you're confusing. We like your old stuff better. When you were doing the whole Sermon on the Mount stuff, that was awesome. Now you're telling these confusing stories. We don't like those stories. Do your old jokes. Do your old stuff. We liked it better. Uh, And then you have this moment where he comes into his hometown and they reject him. They want nothing to do with him. And the very next story you have is his best friend gets killed in the most gruesome of ways. The counter kingdom seems to be doing all right. And you have, by the way, it comes in waves, doesn't it? Those of you who've gone through pain, it tends to come in waves. It's never just one thing. It's always like, if it was just one punch that hit, hit, like you might lose your breath for a moment, but you would come back from it. But the worst things tend to come in waves. Have you noticed this? If it was just like, um, and it's always in the middle of, like, you never can plan it, right? It's always like a 4.30 on a Tuesday. It's never the things you're most afraid of. It's always like the thing that's like the phone call that comes. And then, you, then you've, that's followed up by a child who's like going through some stuff. And then that's followed up by you stub your toe in the door. And you start yelling and you get really angry. And, it, and anyone who looks at you says, well, it's just your toe. You'll be fine. Like, it's not that big of a deal. But you know, it's not just the toe. There's like seven other things I'm going with that you don't see what I'm going with. And so, yes, by the way, I think this is what happened for a lot of us in COVID, right? It was a pandemic, and then you had an election year, racial tensions, all of, uh, all of this, that stuff, and then, uh, and then you go in to a store, and somebody says, okay, well, put it up over your nose, and you're like, I don't want to put it up my, right? That, it's not just about that, and people will say, well, it's just a store rule, like, don't be, like, it's just, this be, like, in, just, but like, it's the compounding effect. And I think what you find in Jesus is there's a compounding effect of what Jesus is, is going through. It's one thing after the next thing after the next thing. Pain tends to come in waves. Let me land the plane with one line. Verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. When it comes... Uh, it's possible that grief can stop us and we have to stop and pay attention to it. But uh, Jesus needs to hear the voice of his father because while grief may stop us, we can't let grief stop us. Um, While grief may stop us, we gotta pay attention to it. We gotta stop and grieve. We can't let grief stop us. What you'll discover, the very next story is Jesus is gonna find 5,000 people who are hungry. They still need him. A little boy who's dying, his mom begs him. 4,000 more people who are starving. If Jesus stops because, okay, that's bad, my hometown doesn't get it, the religious people that I've come to try to teach first so that they could kind of spread the news, they don't get it, and now my own best friend is killed by this counter kingdom. If he stops there, he's done. 
some of us, um, maybe some of you, uh, I want to invite um, to first acknowledge the pain. It was real. And if we don't stop and observe, if the Son of God has to withdraw to pay attention to the pain, so do we. But we can't let the grief stop us. Um, every year, one of the things we do uh, as a church is we take a Sunday and um, we go out to Lake Michigan, and uh, many people use that opportunity, this baptism moment. For some, it's a first-time baptism. It's the time where they say yes to Jesus. Maybe that's you. For others, it's, um, it's a first-time stepping into mission. And so the language is a little bit different, but the experience is very similar. We step into the waters, and we say, Jesus, whatever happened there, I need you to put it back together. We would love for you to join us. I would love to meet you out in that water Um, Whatever you're comfortable sharing of that story, I would love to walk with you through it. And then we would love to mark the moment um, with you of what God has been doing in you. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, um, we thank you for the ways you've woven your story into time and place. Uh, The way, Lord, you um, have unfolded the deepest truths uh, in, in dirt and dust in real time, real place with real people. Uh, Jesus, our prayer is that you would meet us just like you met them. Lord, our prayer for those of us who uh, it has stopped us, it has made us lonely, it has made us scared, it has, um, it has taken the trajectory of our lives and has thrown it in a whole new path. Lord, we pray that you would meet us in it. Uh, Lord, help us to stop and grieve. But Lord, we also don't want this grief to stop us. King Jesus, we love you and we pray this in your name. And everybody said, would you please stand? As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.